Right, friends, welcome. A very hearty, well, can we say hearty? This, is hearty a word? I think hearty is a word. Very hearty welcome to Daily Power Parsha. This is our in-person, online, hybrid edition. And boy, oh boy, it is great to have you all here. So I think we're ready to, to jump right in. I'm going to share my screen for the text to show up. Let's see if that's the right screen that I want to share. It is. Perfect. All right. This week's Torah portion is Pinchas. Parsha's Pinchas. And um, it's, it's Wednesday, so we're doing the fourth reading, which you can see on the screen and also on your sheets in person. We, la- the last thing we covered yesterday was the dramatic plea of the daughters of Tzalavcha to get a place in the land of Israel. Um, by the way, it's still hard to get a place in Israel. Have you tried to get an apartment in Israel lately? I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. But they, they, they were, the Jews were then in the plains of Moab. This was the last st- stop before entering the land of Israel. They knew it. Everyone knew it. And at this point, the daughters of Tzalafchad said to Moses, said to Moshe, we want, we want a piece of the land. You know, we don't want to be left out. Our father is no longer living. He died because of his own sins. But he didn't leave any sons. And we know the current laws of inheritance have it that only the male side of the family is going to inherit a piece of the land. Why should we be left out? Why should our father's name be left out? That was their, their, their request, their petition. And so the, the last verse of yesterday's reading said that Moses brought the petition to God. Well, here is the response. This is Numbers chapter 27, verse number 6. I'm going to read. Everyone can follow along either in person, online, digitally, or what is this called? Analogly? Said no one ever? Hard, Hard copy? Ah, that's too, that's too technical. Anyway, so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tzalafcha's daughters speak justly. In other words, <laughs> I love the Hebrew. Cain benos Tzalafcha dovros. They speak well. They're, they have a good point. You shall certainly, look at this, naton titain. You shall certainly give them a portion of inheritance along with their father's brothers, and you shall transfer their father's inheritance to them. Look at this. God says to Moses, absolutely, 100%, definitely give them a piece of the land of Israel, along with the mishpacha, with the fathers, with your uncles, with your father's brothers. You shall transfer their father's inheritance to them. Imagine if Tzalafchad, the father, was alive. He would get a piece, and you guys would live with your father. He's no longer around. You get that piece. Don't, you will not be cut out of the land of Israel. And then God tells Moses, not only is this, a response to an individual question. This is now going to be the law moving forward. This will now be the law for everyone. So God says, verse 8, to Moses, speak to the children of Israel, saying, as a general rule, if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Remember, remember, I just want to be very clear here. The understanding is if there is a son and a daughter, then the daughter is part of the inheritance as long as she's around and, and unmarried. And when she gets married, she then joins her father's, sorry, her husband's portion in the land. But now we have a law. If there's no son, right, you, the land doesn't disappear. The inheritance, the, the, the estate doesn't disappear. It goes to the daughter. If he has no daughter, so verse number nine, 
This is basically going to be the, um, I'm sure in English, in, in law, there's a word for this, like the order of inheritance. Is there a law? Do we know of the word for it or phrase? Whatever. It's got, it's got some, some, some name to it, I'm sure. Um, and, hey. Hey, Donna. Welcome. Hi, Rabbi. Hey, good to have you. Um, Okay, oh, so we were, let me just bring you up to speed. We, we, we just uh, um, introduced God's answer to Moses regarding the question of Salafah's daughters inheriting the land. God says, absolutely, definitely give them a piece of, of the land along with, the, with their uncles. And then, as a general rule, if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Now, if he has no daughter, and that means if there's no son or daughter, in other words, if somebody passes away and leaves no children, so then what do you do to the, to the estate? What do you do to the land? So it says... Oh, next of kin, right? Thank you, Joy. Next of kin, so there's no next of kin, or there's no children as next of kin, so what do you do? You shall give over his inheritance to his brothers. So instead of going down, you go laterally, if you will. Generationally, you go laterally to the, to the brothers. And verse 10, if he has no brothers, you shall give over his inheritance to his father's brothers. So then you would go to the deceased uncles. Does that make sense? So imagine, let's call him Ruvain. Fellow named Ruvain, Ruvain passes away. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have a daughter. So you say to so what so what happens to the estate? So essentially, you give it to Ruvain's brothers. Well, what if Ruvain has no brothers? So you give it to Ruvain's father's brothers. If he has a father, then you give it to the father, right? But if not father, then father's brothers, then his, the deceased uncles. If he has no Sorry, if his, verse 11, if his father has no brothers, so we're dealing with no children, no siblings, no parents, no uncles, then you shall give over his inheritance to the kinsmen closest to him and his family. Essentially, there's got to be, I mean, the assumption is there's someone who's somewhat related to the, to, this, to the deceased. So whoever is the closest, whoever's the closest gets the inheritance gets the estate. What about his wife? What about his wife? For sure she gets. For sure she gets. Right. So the assumption is, sorry? No, the assumption is that there's no wife. If there's a wife, for sure she gets. That's what she gets. Right? She has to be supported somehow. The assumption here is that there's no wife. I guess it, I, the reason why it's not written here, my guess would be it's almost too obvious to state. That would be my guess, but I can't say for sure. Maybe there's a deeper reason for it. But that's, that almost goes... Without say, I would say that goes without saying almost. Um, so then you look for the closest relative. In other words, we're not, we're not going to say to the widow, ma'am, you're on your own, but we got to find the closest relative somewhere. Like, let's put out an all points bulletin to like, figure out who knew this guy, who's related. I'm sorry, I know it's terrible. You know, we'll have to do a fundraiser, we'll do a campaign. I, so <laughs> it does happen that what? That people... Wife out. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, here's the thing. Well, <laughs> not in my book, but. <laughs> right. So here's the thing. What's very interesting is in halacha, there's a question about how. And I don't know the answer. I have to look it up. But there's a question based on biblical law, which we've just seen. Well, I mean, we're kind of in the middle of it, but I, we're, we're kind of near the end of it. You know, is there the ability to modify it based on 
a will. In other words, what I mean to say is, if Torah says that the inheritance goes to the son, right, the children, so can a person say no? My assumption is yes. I would have to look up the laws. Huh? What are you thinking? You can't change a will from halacha? Or you can't change a will? No, no, no. I don't mean like after the person passed away to change it. What I'm saying is Torah clearly has... Let me take a step back. In Hebrew, we call this nachala. In fact, you could see it in the Hebrew. Let's just... It's literally in all the verses. Like verse 10. I'm going to highlight it in the Hebrew. Nachalato. Um... Yeah, verse 10 in the Hebrew, it's the second to last word of that first line of verse 10, nachalato, which means his inheritance. But nachal also means something else in Hebrew. Nachalato is inheritance, his inheritance, but nachal means, what does nachal mean? Nachal means river. Nachal means river. Why is inheritance called a river? Or why is it the same Hebrew word? The answer is, because like a river flows naturally, inheritance is meant to naturally flow from one generation to the next. It's meant to be like a natural, just like a river flows downward, so the inheritance is meant to flow downward. Um, one time, did anyone take this course that, we've done, that we did a few years ago about the Menendez brothers? Did I teach this course to you guys? Did you take it from me? Did, do you guys know what I'm talking about, the Menendez brothers? Do you remember that case in California? The two brothers that murdered their parents in Beverly Hills or whatever? Remember that? I remember the class. I remember the case. You remember the case? Okay. Because I don't remember teaching it either, which is weird because I thought I've taught it. But I, don't, I can't like, specifically remember when, what context. There were, you can look it up. The Menendez brothers, they literally murdered their parents to inherit their estate. And they got caught. You know, they, they, they got caught somehow, the evidence pointed to them, and they ultimately confessed, or they didn't, I don't know, whatever it was, they, and they got put in jail for murder, first-degree murder. Um, the question is, in Jewish law, absent of a will, do they get the inheritance? Now, in American law, the court says, nope, of course you don't get the inheritance, right? You literally murdered your parents to get the inheritance, you're not getting the inheritance, but in Jewish law, it's a little bit different. Because in Jewish law, it's not about the courts, it's about the reality, the nachla. It's about the river flowing. When a parent passes away, the first place the river flows is down to the next generation. The they passed away, they were I know, I'm saying, but in absent, okay, absent that generation, it flows downward, right? So my point is not to say definitively what the deal is, but there's, a, there's an interest in Judaism and Torah law, clearly, which we're reading right now, for things to flow downward. If it can't flow downward, then it flows upward. Um, which begs the question, could a person say, you know what, I know what Torah law says. It's supposed to be for the children or whatever, but you know what, I, I, I'm not interested. I don't want to do it. I want to override that. Is there an ability? My understanding is yes. Um, but that would probably be taken with a lot of hesitation because understanding the way that the divine intention is that this should, that this should flow. Um, okay, take a look at the, the end of verse 11, which I think we were up to. So again, if his father has no brothers, then you give it to the, the closest relative. And, and look at the end of the verse. This shall remain a decreed statute as the Lord commanded Moses. Look at that. This shall remain a decreed statute. And it uses two terms in Hebrew, chukat, mishpat. We've, talk, we've, we've talked 
many times, including in a Torah studies class a week or two ago, about the difference between chukim and mishpatim. Chukim are the super rational laws. Mishpatim are the civil rational laws. So mishpatim typically make sense to our minds. Chukim typically don't make sense to our minds. This law of inheritance is called in the Torah chukat mishpat. It blends both terms. It's a, it's a decree and it's a rational law. It's an irrational, I, I'm not saying the English. The English says decreed statute. That doesn't, that doesn't help with, the, with the, um, the nuance in the Hebrew. Chukat means a decree, and mishpat means a law, which is typically a logical law, which means that there are elements of, of inheritance that make sense, and elements that perhaps don't make sense, but are by divine decree. So some of this we can wrap our heads around, mishpat, some of these we might not be able to wrap our heads around, chuk, chuk, but either way, this is the law of inheritance. Um, okay, let's pause here for a moment, and take any questions or comments thus far on what we just explained about inheritance. Make sense so far? Yeah, I, I just want to point out the context of this. The context of this is the daughters of Tzalafchad asking for a piece of the land. The answer is yes, not only yes, oh hey, Matt's here. Hey Matt, it is so great to have you. Um, no, you just put in the code. Sandrine, will you help Matt with that? Yeah, 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 just do the code, yeah. You see, online, you guys don't have to do the code. I'm just saying. There's no code. <laughs> All right, Matt, we're here, we're here when you're ready. I know. Oh, that's true. Oh, you're right. You're right. That's, yeah, <laughs> actually. Um, okay. Oh, Joy is asking a question. Um, oh, give it to Chabad if no living relatives. Yeah, for sure. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like how you're thinking. No, listen, it's it's. Um, I think in most cases there's some relative. It's. I don't know that it's vastly different from you know the law of our country. You know, if somebody passed away and there's no will, you look for the next of kin. Yeah, you look for a relative. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I, I I'm not. I stand back and say I'm not an expert in this area of law either. I'm not an expert in this in Jewish law, nor obviously in in civil. Wait, it goes where? To the state, you said? To yes. the state? Yes. Really? Wait, but there's got to be some relative. Oh, you're saying if they can't find one. Well, there doesn't, but Rabbi, no, there doesn't have to necessarily be a relative. You're saying, okay, so in a case where there's no relative, not even a cousin or whatever, okay, yeah, you know, I guess you're right, yeah, there's a, there's a situation, yeah. Well, they're not going to do a search. I mean, you know, I mean, who's right. going to do the search? Right. I mean, you know, You're saying the rest. state would rather just keep it as opposed to yeah. doing a lot of uh, research on that. Yeah. That's why they advertise. Got it. They put a notice in the paper. Looking for relatives. Guys. Interesting. Interesting. And but a lot of people don't, yeah, there are, there's a significant number of people. And Ray, Ray is pointing out that we'd be surprised as to how many people show up and say, I'm here even though they're not, re they're not related. That's terrible. I'm interested, in, I'm interested in perhaps doing something to, to donate to the state of Israel. So the, right. Instead of the United States. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and there's a way to do that. I'm sure, like, with the will or whatever, that's the easy way to do it. Even One if, second, right, yeah. Even if you, if you don't sign your will, 
Wow. Ray is pointing out that even if you have a will, but it's not signed, so it's almost like on a technicality, they, the, state will, uh, the state will take it. That's wild. Hey, here you go. What's the coupon code? Um, 4141. Okay, and make sure you sell Chabad in town five hours, and then 4141, and it'll zero it out. Okay, I do want to point out something else, which may be a question that was like, you may have thought of this question. It's maybe like an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If Hashem had a plan for how inheritance should work, you know, step one, check for sons. Step two, check for daughters. Step three, check for uncles. Step five, ch- siblings, right, siblings, then uncle, whatever. If that's kind of, if, if there was this step-by-step, you know, checklist, so how come God didn't communicate that initially? Why did he wait? Until Tzalafah's daughters are like, hey, what about us? And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, yeah, we got you covered. So here's, the, here's now the law. Like, it's, it kind of, it's, it's, we'll say, I'll use the Talmudic terminology. It's like, mimanavshach, which means either way. Like, if this was supposed to be, the, if this was intentional the way it was supposed to work, so how come God didn't just share it right away? And if this was not supposed to be the way that it works, then how come God introduced it in response to a request? That doesn't seem like you create a law, you know, out of nowhere for a request. So the way typically the commentators understand it is that this was initially, this was intended to be the law about inheritance with daughters, but Hashem wanted to give the daughters of Tzalafcha the opportunity to initiate it and to, and to gain a mitzvah given because of them. In other words, they, they didn't create a mitzvah, but they, they knocked on the door and were able to summon the mitzvah out from Hashem, which basically gave them, gives them an incredible merit in Torah that it's they were the catalyst for a mitzvah to be taught. Not that it wouldn't have been taught perhaps otherwise, but that they were the ones to bring it to the fore. That's kind of cool for them. So it's basically, you know, Hashem giving them an opportunity to be a partner in the formulation of Torah, in the uh, formulation of the mitzvot. Anyway, I think that's, that there's, a, there's commentaries that say that, and I think it's a beautiful insight. And I think that the, the takeaway message from this is, like we've said in other contexts, don't be afraid to knock on the door. Right? You just might get the answer, you know. It, like with regard to prayer, a person might say, why should I pray? What's the point? Either Hashem wants it or He doesn't want it. Right? If God wants this person, right, to, to be healthy, so God will make him healthy. If God wants him to not get healthy, God forbid, so he won't get healthy. So why am I praying for this guy? What's the point of prayer? It's not going to change anything. The answer is, slow down. Maybe Hashem does want to do it, but He's waiting for someone to ask. Like this mitzvah. Hashem wants, to, wants this mitzvah to happen. He's waiting for someone to ask. So the daughters of Lovka were the ones who asked. Now, why, why, if God wants it, why is he waiting for us to ask? Because God wants a partnership. Because God wants this, a conversation. God wants us to be active partners in this. Anyway, just some, some perspective on the mitzvah and also on prayer and to, to recognize the value and the, the role that we play in the world by divine intention. There's something... One second, yeah. Sandrine, jump in. And I'm going to repeat the question. So you guys can... Oh, who was Tzalafchad? Good question. So Tzalafchad was a guy who had five daughters. No, but he was a guy who um, died either because he was the Mekoshesh Eitzim, either he was the wood gatherer who was put to death for gathering wood on Shabbos, or he was one of the Mapilim, one of the people who decided to try to conquer Israel after they were told that they would wander for 40 years in the desert. So Lafgad was either the wood gatherer or one of the 
Mapilim. Um, what's the good? What's the transition from Mapilim? They were the the guys who didn't take no for an answer and who got destroyed by the Amalekim and the Canaanites and all, the, all that stuff. So their point to Moses was, to Moshe was, look, our father died. He's, he died for his own sins. He wasn't part of the revolt of Korach. He deserves a piece of land. And he's not around. And he, he has no sons. We're around. Yeah, Mark, jump in. Yeah, actually, Rosh has a very non-PC comment here. Ooh. Because it says, uh, in the Torah it says, uh, you shall cause the inheritance of your father to pass over. But Rashi says it is related to the word Evra, which is wrath. Hmm. For there is wrath against one who does not leave a son to inherit him. Wow. Okay, a little, a little harsh. Yeah. yeah, God's wrath if someone doesn't leave a son to inherit them. Listen, I, I'm sure there's more commentators on Rashi to explain that because somebody doesn't have a son. They don't have a son. I mean, what are you going to do? Baba it's says the, same thing. the Talmud. So, we'd have to, yeah. so yeah. we would have to look up the Talmud. That might be a curious tale of the Talmud to try to figure out what it means. But, all right, we... There's more to discover, but that's an interesting Evra. Evra, by the way, is wrath, is found in the Haggadah. It's one of the, one, in the Haggadah on Passover at the Seder, we quote a verse, Evra, um, I, forget, I forget the whole verse, but it talks about how God brought his fury and wrath upon the Egyptians. So Evra is one of the words about God's wrath upon the Egyptians, but I guess it's relating, it, the Talmud is relating it to the word here, that the, it's passing over to the, but it doesn't seem right. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, to me, that Rashi requires further analysis. That word's not here, right? It is some, somewhere here. Um, let's see, where is it? Where did you find that word? Uh, oh, Vahavarta. Vahavarta. In, in verse number 7, it says, And you shall transfer the inheritance. Transfer is Vahavarta. I'm going to highlight it in the Hebrew on, online. Avarta, Evra means also wrath. So... Okay, listen, some people have sons, some people don't have sons. But anyway, we'd have, we'd have to look at that Talmud and see kind of more context. All right, let's do this verse 12. Um, all right, let's jump in. Oh, oh, look at this. Now we get away from technical, more to the story, to the narrative, and a very emotional, a very emotional moment here. Okay, the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this Mount Abir Abarim, Har Ha'avarim, Mount Abarim. And look at the land. Now this, they're in the plains of Moab. Plains are like flat land, right? So he says, go up in the mountain, Mount Abarim, and you'll be able to see from there the land of Israel, which you're not going to enter. Go up this Mount Abarim and look at the land that I've given to the children of Israel. By the way, God says, I have given. He hasn't, well, he's promised it. It's not yet been delivered because the Jews haven't yet stepped foot into it. Nonetheless, God says, I've already given it. Um, and verse 13, and when you see it, look at this, and when you see it, you too will be gathered to your people, that means you will pass away, just as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. All right, verse 14, just in case you thought that Moses didn't remember, God explains why the closest he'll get to Israel is looking at it from a mountain and not actually stepping foot in it. God says in verse 14, because you disobeyed my command in the desert of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, when you were to sanctify me through the water before their eyes by speaking to the rock, and instead you hit the rock, these were the waters of dispute at Kadesh in the desert of Zin. Essentially, what God is saying is, the reason why you are going to pass away before you 
lead the people into the land of Israel and you will not lead them into Israel is because you didn't listen to me when I told you to speak to the rock and said you hit the rock and that um, was a lack of sanctification of me uh, before the eyes of the people. All right, and that is Hashem reiterating His promise. Now the question is, why does God repeat it here? Why does God repeat His mention of, by the way, you're not going into the land, why does He repeat it here? He's already communicated it to Moses multiple times. He told it to him after, this, after hitting the rock, He said, you're not going to go in. So then why, why does He need to rub it in one more time? There's a Rashi. Yeah, so Rashi, if I'm not mistaken, Rashi explains... Because God had just given an allowance to the, to the daughters of Tzalafchad to inherit the land. Right? God had just acquiesced to the request of Tzalafchad's daughters to inherit the land, which wasn't initially canonized in law up to that point. So God maybe opened up a bit of a new channel for the daughters to inherit. So Moses thought, well, maybe if God is in a generous mood, maybe he'll give me a chance to go into Israel. Are you with me in the chronology of this request? Right? So God just said yes to Tzalafchad's daughters. So Moses is thinking, well, maybe I'll also get green-lighted. And Hashem says, regarding you, I still haven't changed my mind. You're still not going to go in. Let's toggle Rashi. Oh, I can't toggle Rashi in person on paper. That would be nice. That would be a parlor trick if I could do that. Yeah, Donna, jump in. Don't forget to unmute. So what does that tell us about teshuva? Because, you know, we've heard us a lot this week that yeah. at any moment we, get, we all are redeemed. Yeah. No Donna, Donna's asking a good question. If God accepts teshuva, if God accepts, you know, I'm sorry and apologies and makes it all better, so how come God doesn't accept Moses' apology and, and, and let him into the land? First of all, I don't think Moses ever apologized. <laughs> if, we're being, if we're being honest, I don't, I don't see anywhere where, where Moses says, my bad, I'm sorry, I, should, I shouldn't have hit the rock. I don't believe you'll find anywhere in Torah where Moses says that. I don't believe so. I could be wrong. I don't believe so. Now, um, did Moses express his desire anyway to go into the land of Israel? 100%. Did Moses express his desire that the people should not be left without a leader? We'll see that he does express that right now. Um, but what we do know is that I don't think Moses had any regret for hitting the rock. I think he intentionally hit the rock. The way we understood it, we gave multiple explanations a few weeks ago about that. But the one that I want to take into this week's to today's conversation is that Moses knew that if he spoke to the rock and the rock produced water, it would be used against the Jewish people by God. God would say, look, even a rock will listen to me and you're not going to listen to me. And so Moses said, I will not allow my people to be less than a rock. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to allow the rock to do more listening than my, the people that I love. I don't think Moses ever regretted it. Moses is like, nope, the rock is not going to be spoken to. It's going to be hit, and uh, that's it. Well, in, a, in a sense, he martyred himself. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, thank you for, actually, for saying that in, in, in clearer terms than I was trying to say. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. He martyred himself. Not that we look for martyrdom in Judaism. We look to live and whatever. But he was not going to let his people be one-upped by a rock. Not going to happen. That's why also Moses broke the tablets. Moses said, I'm ready to destroy myself, to go down in defense of my people, to break God's own handwriting on God's own tablets, because on those tablets it says, thou shalt not serve idols, I'm paraphrasing, right? And they served an idol, so I'm destroying the proof, I'm destroying the evidence, I'm shredding the documents. 
I'm not recommending this legally. Please do not misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not saying go into the office and shred all your legal documents. I'm not saying you should have illegal documents. I'm just saying that Moses is like, this, these tablets, as holy as they are, are going to pose a challenge and a threat to my people out with, the, out, with the, out with those stones. And Moses said the same thing with the rock. I guess he's into hitting stones. Logistically, it makes sense. But you would also think that Hashem, given it's Moses, would have some kind of grace. Yep. Yep. I'm with you. I want to toggle this Rashi up. For those in person, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it for everybody, but you can't see it. But, but listen to what, I'm, to what I'm reading. Rashi says, why does this passage... Why is this passage juxtaposed with the previous passage? Why did God tell Moses to go up in the mountain and then remind him he's not going, look at the land, but you're not going in there? Why, right after the story of Tzalafat's daughters, I said this outside, but I'm going to read it inside, when the Holy One, blessed be he, said, you shall certainly give them, um, the, the daughter of Tzalafat, a piece of the land, Moses said, the omnipresent commanded me to allocate the inheritance, perhaps the decree has been annulled, and I will enter the land. In other words, he's saying, maybe God has changed his mind, and maybe I can also get in. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, my decree remains as it was. Okay, that is it. Um, actually, let's go to, there's, there's, an, there's an, uh, a metaphor, analogy. This can be compared to a king who decreed that his son could not enter the portals of his palace. When the king entered the gate, with him, the son following, the courtyard, with him following, the foyer, with him following, or is it foyer? When he was about to enter the inner chamber, he said to him, which one is it? Is it a foyer? Foyer. All right. When he was about to enter the inner chamber, he said to his son, my son, from here on is forbidden to you to enter. So as they were getting closer, the son was thinking, oh, maybe he changed his mind. And then he's like, nope, I still haven't changed my mind, but this is, this is the extent as far as you can go. So God tells Moses, even though I'm letting Tzalafchad's daughters to inherit, you're still going to end up here. You're not going to go into Israel. Okay. Verse 15. Let's all be on the same page here. Literally, verse 15. Now Moses continues the dialogue with God. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, in direct response to what God just told him, that you're not going into the land. So Moses says to God, if this is true, then let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. In other words, if I am not going to go in, then you need to appoint a leader. You need to appoint someone over this congregation. 17. What are the qualifications of this person? Someone who will go forth before them and come before them, who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's a powerful line. Moses says, do not let me pass away without having a leader to take over because then you're going to have these people. I know these people. They need leadership, right? They can't be left to their own devices. Yeah. Jews. So like, you got to appoint the leader so that they're not like sheep without a shepherd. So Moses pleads with God to appoint a leader. The language of verse 17 is interesting. Someone who will, go be, who will go forth before them and come before them, who will lead them out and bring them in. So it basically like going and coming, somebody who is on top of the people, being able to lead them, not in a negative way, but like on top of things and knowing what's going on, knowing what the people need, that sort of thing. I saw, I once saw a beautiful interpretation of the verse, not... Not in English, but in Hebrew, because in Hebrew you can read a little bit differently into it. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, has a beautiful insight. He says, there, there's, a, there's a fine balance that you have to walk when it comes to leadership. Right? On the one hand, a leader is meant to lead. In other words, be ahead of the people. 
Because if you're just alongside the people, you're not leading, you're just walking with them. So leadership implies that you're ahead, that you have a vision, that you have that you're thinking ahead of where everyone else is thinking, that's what makes a leader a leader. At the same time, if you're too far ahead, well, then you're just too far ahead. No one's going to follow because, like, you're ahead of, like, we would say, oh, that was a visionary who was ahead of their time. But that doesn't do anything for the people. So it's a tricky balance. It's like kind of, you know, showing the direction of where to go, which is further than where you are right now. So it's like, it's, it's, it's sharing a vision, and then, so it's like walking ahead and then circling back around to the back and pushing everybody toward that. Are you with me? It's like leading from the front and also leading from the back as well. So it's like showing people where to go and then helping them get there. So the leadership role is not only visionary, but it's also facilitator. So there's, there's, um, it's, it's a, the point is it's complicated. It's not easy. So Moses says, God, please, if it's not me, get somebody qualified, appoint somebody qualified for the job. And God says, no problem. By the way, there was also an agenda there, which I'm going to share in a moment. Verse 18, God responds. The Lord said to Moses, okay, I agree. Take for yourself Joshua, the son of Nun, a man of spirit, and you shall lay your hand upon him. That means the smicha, the bestowing of the power, the, you know, the, yeah, anoint him as the next leader. Verse 19, and you shall present them before Elazar the Kohen. Elazar, of course, was the high priest, the son of Aaron, who became the high priest when, when his father passed away. Present them before Elazar the Kohen and before the entire congregation, and you shall command him in their presence. In other words, appoint him, transfer the mantle of leadership with the people watching. The worst thing is a vacuum of power, or if, not power, it's not about power, a vacuum of leadership or inspiration. That's, the, that's, that's one of the most challenging things, is when, when the, the leader has passed away, well, the leader is gone, and now it's the question is, well, who's, who's leading? Who's driving the ship? Am I mixing metaphors here? Who's piloting the ship or captaining the ship? Who's, who's driving this train? Like, who's in charge? And if no one knows, and then, then you have power fights. Then it's like, oh, this one says it should be me and has followers. And that one says, no, it should be me. And then there's followers on that side. And then you just fracture the group and you fracture the community and all havoc breaks loose. So God tells Moses, good point. There needs to be another leader, someone who's qualified. God says, I know who it is. His name is Joshua. And I need you, Moses, to transfer that, to appoint him while you're still alive, in front of all the people so that there's no question about how that transfers, how, how, how leadership and that power, it's not power, how that influence transfers. Hold on one second. Let me just, feel, I want to go back to a few things, good, but let's do, let's do a few more verses. Verse 20, you shall bestow, God continues to Moses, you shall bestow some of your majesty upon him, upon um, Joshua, so that all the congregation of Israel, of the children of Israel, will take heed. In other words, give, start giving him the respect, start giving him the honor, start putting him in, you know, the prominent positions of prominence, even while you're still the leader, while you're still alive, so that the children of Israel will take heed, so that they will get the point that this is going to be the next guy. He shall stand, verse 21, he shall stand before Lazar the Kohen. And seek counsel from him through the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. What that means to say, God is saying that Joshua does not need to have all the answers. 
Joshua does not need to have all the answers himself. He needs to know where to turn for the answers. Because there's a high priest. You know, let, let me just jump in for a second. Before, there was a very clear way that this worked. There was Moses and Aaron. They were siblings and they got along beautifully. So Moses did his, his thing. Aaron did his thing. If Moses needed Aaron, he knew where to go. If Aaron needed Moses, he knew where to go. Aaron's gone and now it's Elazar, his son. Moses is shortly going to pass away and now it's going to be Joshua. And so what Moses is imploring, sorry, what God is imploring is that they work together. Because the last thing you want is, number one, a vacuum of leadership, as I mentioned before. But also, number two, the last thing you want is for the two positions of power, the two positions of leadership to be fighting with each other, to become territorial. Well, this guy is the new Moses. This guy is the new Aaron. And they don't get along. So now it's like, well, who's team Aaron? Who, sorry, who's team Elazar? Who's team Joshua? You don't want that either. So Elazar, sorry, Joshua needs to know that he needs to go to Elazar to get advice from the Urim, the judgment of the Urim. The Urim is the Urim Batum, the breastplate, the, the, the power of the breastplate. You gotta, they have to work with each other. And by his word, they shall go. And by his word, they shall come. He and all Israel with him and the entire congregation. And I believe that means into war, into battle, right? War is defined. There has to be a, 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 a process by which that is determined. And that needs, there needs to be cooperation and guidance and leadership in that regard. Otherwise, chaos breaks out. And of course, we know this from history. We know this from experience. You just need healthy leadership and direction. Now, Let's go back a few verses. Okay? Actually, you know what? Let's finish. Let's just finish off. Let's finish. And we, there's a lot of stuff to go back to. Moses did, verse 22, Moses did as the Lord had commanded him, and he took Joshua, even though certainly you could imagine on an emotional level this was painful because this meant that he was, you know, he wasn't going to go in and that's it. So, but he did as God commanded him. He took Joshua and presented him before Elazar the Kohen and before the entire congregation. He laid his hands upon him and commanded him in accordance with what the Lord had spoken to Moses, basically telling him that he needs to lead the people in a certain way and seek counsel by Elazar, the high priest, and cooperate with that branch of the government, so to speak. Okay, now I want to go back to a few things because there's another juxtaposition here that needs to be noticed. We cannot, uh, um, you know, ignore this. It's very powerful. Moses' request, if you look back to verse 15 and 16, where Moses says to God, let God's, the God of spirits of all flesh appoint the man over the congregation, etc. God appoint the leader. Rashi points out from our sages that there was an agenda here. There was a motive. What was the motive? What was the agenda? Moses wanted his son to take over his position. I'll say that again. Moses wanted his own son to take over his position. And again, the juxtaposition is powerful. We just read how Tzalafchad's daughters inherited their father's land, and will inherit their father's property. That means that the child takes the place of their father. Moses says, I want my child to take my place. You just told me I'm not going to lead them into Israel. I accept that verdict. I accept your decree. I will pass away before they enter the land. I'm asking you now, appoint the leader, and I'm suggesting my son. 
And God says, I will appoint a leader. It's not going to be your son. It's going to be the person most qualified for the job. There will not be, I'm going to use a harsh word here, there will not be nepotism. There will not be a just because he's your son, so automatically he's the most qualified for the job. There's not going to be any of that. It's going to go to the most qualified candidate. And we know that Joshua, it says about Joshua, lo yamish mitocha oel. He didn't move from Moses' tent. When Moses went up the mountain to get the Torah or whatever, the tablets, it was Joshua who was waiting for him at the bottom of the mountain, who was not even around where they were doing the golden calf. And they walked together to check out what was going on. Joshua was always by Moses' side. He was his faithful assistant or faithful student. He studied. He taught under him, etc. He was the most qualified for that position of Torah guidance of that leadership. And so God says to Moses, this is not going to work. Inheritance and estate, father, child. The kahuna, the priesthood, your brother Aaron, father, child. The priesthood is also father, child. But when it comes to Torah, there's no gimmies. There are no gimmies. If your dad's a Kohen, you're a Kohen. That's the way it works. But if your dad's a scholar, that doesn't mean that you're a scholar. You know when you become a scholar? When you study. And if your dad was not a scholar, you can be a scholar. How? Through study. If your dad's a Kohen, you're a Kohen. If your dad's not a Kohen, you ain't going to be a Kohen. It's not going to happen. So the Kohuna, the priesthood, is set. It's generational. It's hereditary. But the, the, the crown, there's different crowns. The crown of, of, of priesthood. The crown of royalty also. The king is also father-son, typically. But the crown of Torah is not hereditary. A father could have it and a child might not have it. Conversely, a father might not have it and the child could have it. Joshua did not come. We don't, I don't know much about Joshua's parents, to be honest. I don't want to assume that they, they didn't study or whatever, but Joshua didn't come from a pedigreed, a, a natural, give me, you know, yeah, obviously it was going to be Joshua. He put in the hours. He was dedicated. He, he did the work. And he became the next Torah leader of the Jewish people. Moses' sons did not. It's not me making this judgment. It's God as explained by, these verses explained by the commentaries. Mark. It almost, it almost seems that Moses set it up for his sons not to get it. Because it, yeah, because it says, uh, where it says, who shall go out before them. Uh, and in Rashi it says, in the manner that Joshua acted, as it says, Joshua went to him and said to him, this Rashi, uh, are you ours, uh, or are you of our enemies? Similarly, of David, it says, for he would go out and come back before them. He would go out in the battle in the lead and come back in the lead. Uh, and who shall take them out means through his merits. And in a note I have here, it said, merit is necessary in taking an army out to battle. This is Sephirah mm -hmm. 139. Uh, uh, it says, uh, for the worthiness of the king instills a spirit of confidence in his troops. In other right. words, Joshua it's based had, on merit. Yeah, Joshua had the merits. Right. Most, what what Mark is saying from Rashi, right, what, what, what Mark is saying from Rashi is that Moses' request almost worked against him because he was asking for somebody who would lead the people based on merit, and so God says merit is merit, and that's going to be Joshua. But I want to highlight Rashi to verse 16, which I have here on the screen, which I'll read out loud. It says, when Moses' request, let the Lord appoint, listen to Rashi, when Moses heard, that the omnipresent, that God told him to give Tzalafchad's inheritance to his daughters, he said, it is time to ask for my own needs. 
that my son should inherit my high position. Right, now that, now that children are inheriting, right, the daughters of Slavkat are getting there, so now it's time for me to ask for my son to inherit my position. And the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, this is not my intention. Nope, for Joshua deserves to be rewarded for his service, for he would, this is what I quoted before, he would, he would not depart from the tent. This is what Solomon when he said, he who guards the fig tree eats its fruit. That's a kind of cool proverb from the book of Proverbs. He, it almost sounds like a fortune cookie also, he who guards the fig tree, right? It does. I, I love this line for the record. Proverbs 27, 18. He who guards the fig tree eats its fruit. If you're dedicated to it, if, if you're all in, then you get to eat of its fruit. No Johnny come lately like, oh, hey, I'm here to, 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 to you know, to to collect the inheritance of my father, that's not going to work with this with his position of leadership. And, yeah, Donna, yeah. So can we, uh, does that lead to that each individual can rise as high as, it, as his or her own potential? What becomes heartbreaking for Moses becomes a source of hope and optimism for us. Moses' disappointment is our, what's the opposite of disappointment? Appointment, no, is our, um, is our hope, opportunity. our opportunity, opportunity. exactly. Yeah. His disappointment is that his son won't. Why not? Because it's merit-based. It's about how much time did you put in? And you can come from nowhere like Joshua and earn it. And that's the message for us. We should never say, well, I didn't grow up studying Torah. I didn't go to yeshiva. I didn't have the opportunity when I was younger. It's never too late. It's never too late. The de our destiny is in our own hands. We can choose to study, we can choose to be committed, we can choose to, you know, be all in, and then we're all in. No, you know, I, I don't want to say too much because it's going to get into tonight's Torah studies class. Ooh, I'm so tempted, but I, don't, I really don't want to give everything away for tonight. Which tonight's Torah studies class, you should know, starts in a completely different place, but it circles around to a very similar point, which is such a powerful point. But I'm just going to say this pursuant to our conversation. Yeah, Torah is meant to be democratized. Torah for all. There is no criteria by which, oh, if you don't do this, if you don't know that, if you're not from this family, then you can't study Torah. Never. That is fake news. Anyone and everyone can study Torah. In fact, anyone and everyone must study Torah. It's a mitzvah. It's a divine commandment. God says, please study Torah. So we should never hold ourselves back just because, you know, we didn't or, you know, who are we to do it or our parents I didn't. I think it's saying that what is personally earned, you know, from work, from internal, is, is even greater than what is, you know, inherited. Bequeathed, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, yes. What we earn is ours. Good, good. All right. So that's it. So I want to wrap it up because we have a special presentation um, that Mark will be doing, which is a surprise presentation. I just know that he's doing a presentation. I may have my suspicions, but nonetheless, it's a surprise. I didn't know, I didn't know that there was going to be a presentation. Um, but what I do want to say in, in kind of just thinking about this reading, and I'm going to toggle Rashi off on my end just so I have a little bit of uh, a perspective over here. What we've learned today, I think, are two really empowering ideas, and I think they're related. Number one, God may have a plan, but he wants us to be part of that plan. God wants us to knock on the door. God wanted Salafqa's daughters to petition so that he could say yes. 
God had an intention about how inheritance would work, but God wanted Tzalafchad's daughters to play a role. God wants human initiative. And when it comes to Torah, once again, God wants our initiative. God wants our effort. God wants us to study, to earn it, and become wise, and become scholarly, become wise in the ways of Torah, and of course, do the mitzvot. God wants us to do it. There's no free ride. There's no free ride. Just because, you know, you're, um, it's almost like the Tzalafchad's daughters. Just because God intended all along to give it to you doesn't mean you shouldn't ask, right? Just because your father's Moses doesn't mean you're going to get the job necessarily. It's, it's all about the, the effort that we put in. So I think these two stories on every level line up and it speaks to the importance of our own initiative. All right, so what's the message? Let's take charge. Let's initiate. Let's earn it. Let's put in the effort and it'll feel good when we accomplish great things. All right, that's it for today. And now a very special presentation. How should we do this? Mark, do you want to come here so that everyone can see you? Yeah, stampy. And also you get to stand in front of a cool backdrop, which is, I think it's really cool. I still think it's cool. Even, even. Or I could turn, yeah, but now it's less cool of a background. I could turn a little bit. I still want to Where keep the, right here. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to put this down first. I'm not give it to you yet. Oh. That's good. Cut. We can see you both. All right. Yeah, let's put it down. Okay. Should I stand up also? If you need to. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. This is formal. Okay. Um, you know what this is most likely, but, but I'll, I'll talk about it. Uh, how this came about. After Rabbi Pfeffer, of blessed memory, passed away, Sandrine and I were talking, uh, what could we do special for him? Because we just done something for Ray. Uh, and Sandrine said, you know, why not get some letters in a Torah for him? And I thought that was a great idea. So I got to thinking about it. I said, you know, it seems like there is a Pusik in the Torah which says you're supposed to write your own Torah. Right. And I said, I always like to go a little further than I guess. So I said, uh, and Sandrina said, the main Chabad usually has a Torah going, which you can buy letters in. So I contacted them. And they said, no way. <laughs> so I then said, who would know who, would, who could find a Torah? I said, Rabbi Schusterman. <laughs> He's plugged in all over the place. Um, and so anyway, uh, he found out that at the Chabad of Peabody, he has a brother. <laughs> Rabbi Nehemiah Schusterman, uh, and they're in the midst of writing a Torah. So I contacted Rabbi Nehemiah. It'll be, this Torah will be completed in August of uh, 2021. I wanted to get it, hopefully, Kisvu, which in that Pusik means you will write. In my wildest dreams, I didn't think we'd be able to get the verse, because usually that's reserved for the people who are actually the big donors for the right. Torah. Um, Rabbi Nehemiah responded to me, I love Rabbi Ari. You can have the whole verse, wow. and whatever you donate will be sufficient. But I thought about that. I said, that's fantastic. But then I said, you know, we've got a lot of people here who love Rabbi Ari too. Surely we can come up with what they're charging for a verse. And so we found out that that was 360. And so I contacted a lot of people, every, you know, in, in DPP. Uh, the class really wanted to raise the full 360. And in fact, many volunteered to give more. Uh, with so many participating, we didn't need to ask for more, because we all love you too. Thank you. This is your certificate, by the way. There is another one, and that, that's for your mother. Thank you. But I, it's, 
Sandrine just had this uh, fragment. By the way, you should know that Sandrine was my confidant and accomplice <laughs> all along the way, but she said for me just to be the one who presents this. Uh, wow. This, this certificate states, I'll let you look at it before I start talking. It's so beautiful. I'm so, I'm so grateful. This that's, is that's, very, very special. As long as that isn't a Gordian knot. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> All of my, uh, my training in the, the Chabad Boy Scouts is helping me. Wow, it's beautiful. <laughs> the certificate says, the Chabad of Peabody toward dedication presented to Rabbi Ari Solish in memory of Rabbi Herschel Pfeffer, Svi Hirsch ben Chaim Yeshayahu HaKohen, by Rabbi Ari's daily power parsha DPP class. Wow, uh, beautiful. And it says, dedicated verse to Varim 3119. By the way, that is the verse which says, it's a, it's a mitzvah to write your own Torah. Now write for yourselves this song and teach it to the children of Israel. Place it into their mouths so this song will be for me as a witness for the children of Israel. Acknowledgement of your contribution towards the tour of unity and healing, May 19, 2021. But by the way, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. DPP won all pledges in, with them all being in time for Shavuos. So we had all the pledges in by early Sunday, which is just before Arab Shavuos. Wow. Um, Rabbi Pfeffer was an amazing man, just Shechet, a sofer, a gabbai, someone who was always on the lookout for what he could do for others. This is a fitting tribute to a unique and saintly man. I speak for all of DPP when I say, may this be an Aliyah, where's the show? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Beautiful. I, I am, I am uh, I'm humbled and, and just overawed and overjoyed at this. It's beautiful. My grandfather, as some of you met him, um, and I've spoken a lot about him. Some of you met him in person. Some of you met him online on, on the Zoom classes in the last few months. Um, but his, a big part of his life was Safras, was writing, was checking Torahs and writing and checking mezuzahs and everything. A big part of his life. Like I picture him, if you saw him in person, you would see that he had magnifying glasses, magnifying lenses on his glasses. Anybody remember him? He had like little uh, pieces on his glasses. Why he kept that always on his glasses because in case he had to look uh, look at uh, examine a piece of parchment, be able to knock it down. I mean, he also used it for reading eventually because you know it was convenient. But he would that was his scribal stuff. He, what I'm saying is he he wore he wore his safros on a sleeve and on his glasses even, and it was a big part of 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 who he was and what he did. And I know that a dedicating a verse in his honor is really really special for him and for his neshama, especially for me and our family, and um, especially this verse that talks about writing a Torah scroll. It's a sofer verse. Which is about, it's about the sofer. It's about writing it, and, and, and that's, uh, that's what he did, and, and, and that, that was a big piece of his life. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for participating. Thank you. And this is extremely meaningful to me, and I'm very touched. Appreciate it. All right. All right. Thank you. All right, um, I think we'll officially sign off. I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. Um, we'll see you guys. Uh, quick announcement for all of those that we're signing off online with. Don't forget, tonight we have Torah Studies. Torah Studies begins at 7.30. We have an incredible class um, on, the, on the Torah portion. Tomorrow is DPP again, um, uh, online, all online. And then tomorrow night we have our first session of 
the resurrection course called Resurrection of the Dead. That will also be on Zoom, not in person for this one. That will be on Zoom beginning tomorrow night, 8 p.m. You can find out more information about that on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. All right, we'll see you guys. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure. Good to see you, Sarah, Olia, Donna, and who else did we lose? And Joy was here. All right, we'll see you guys. Take care.